Today is July 8th, 2012, and this is Radio Free New England with Chris Merritt. In today's podcast, an interview with Nancy Hoffman, founder and curator of the world's only umbrella cover museum on Peaks Island, Maine. Nancy spent Saturday preparing an entry for the Guinness Book of World Records, and we'll hear the results later in the program. And finally, Eric Messick is back discussing local seafood in this week's Snail's Path. First, the news. Maine Governor Paul LePage spoke out against the Supreme Court's health care ruling in his weekly radio address this weekend. LePage attacked national health care, but his remarks were overshadowed by a comment he made comparing the IRS to the Gestapo in Nazi Germany. LePage, who prides himself on being outspoken, is under attack from Maine Democrats and others across the state who believe his rhetoric was uncalled for and insulting to Holocaust survivors. LePage argues that Maine cannot afford to implement the Affordable Care Act, calling it a drain on taxpayers and a jobs killer. Congressman Barney Frank married his partner Jim Reedy in Newton, Massachusetts on Saturday. Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank is the first openly gay congressman, and his marriage is a boost for gay marriage activists. Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick helped Frank and Reedy tie the knot by officiating the ceremony. Now for this week's New England Spotlight. New Englanders are known for being well-rounded. Farmers who also kept their own shop. Professionals who also grew their own food. Hardy folk who took care of themselves. Yet none of these descriptions quite encapsulates just how eclectic Nancy Three Hoffman's life really is. In 1996, Nancy founded the Umbrella Cover Museum on Peaks Island in Maine, citing her appreciation of the mundane as one of her guiding principles. But that's not the whole story. Nancy Hoffman is also a singer, an accordion player, and with the recent publication of a book about her museum, an accomplished writer. Radio Free New England spoke with Nancy Hoffman this past week about the history of her museum and the chance for recognition in the Guinness Book of World Records. I had two umbrella sleeves flying around my house and was curious about why they were manufactured. Didn't expect to use them at all because they're always so hard to get back on the umbrella, you know. And um, but I thought they were kind of cute, so I asked other people if they had their leftover umbrella covers, and lots of people have them. So right away, I was impressed by the phenomenon of people saving umbrella covers, even if the umbrella was broken or lost. Hoffman's not just an amateur museum curator; she studied at Brown University and the University of Michigan. So I was curious how she organized her collection of covers. I put them in exhibits. I have the curator as well as the director and founder of the museum. So I decide what the categories are. Current categories on the wall include Mad for Plaid, where you can guess what country a plaid umbrella cover comes from. And surprisingly, they don't all come from Scotland. Then there's one called Controversial Covers. Controversies over size, over origin, over, well, the provenance. I mean, they're just different little debates. Um, there's the petting zoo, where you can feel different textures and fabrics of umbrella covers. There are sexy umbrella covers. Well, with categories like those, I wanted to know where all those covers came from. True to her museum's playful form, most of them were donated. So it started out with my few, you know, like four or five. And then people started giving them to me when they found out I was a collector. And I have one person who donated 49 umbrella covers. 
In addition, friends, museum visitors, and people making pilgrimages gather up umbrella covers from all over the world and add them to the collection of Peaks Island. The museum boasts covers from 48 different countries. I like to think of it as a little United Nations where there are every color, design, you know, ethnic grouping represented, and they're all getting along. I, you know, it's kind of a very simplistic model for world peace. With so many umbrella covers divided into so many categories, the question obviously comes up. Is this some kind of world record? Nancy explains that the road to the Guinness count was a challenge. They've created a new category for the largest privately owned collection of umbrella suites. <laughs> and the way that happened is that for the past four years, actually starting in 2007, but I didn't do it every year, I sent them an application to be the largest collection of umbrella covers. And they would send a very nice but formal rejection letter saying, oh, we get 60,000 requests a year to create a new category. Sorry. Finally, this year's request was accepted, and the Umbrella Cover Museum had its official Guinness count Saturday, July 7th. Members of the public were invited to help count the umbrella sleeves. Nancy Hoffman describes the process. And we will have to send this information in. So people ask, are the Guinness people coming? The answer is no. Unfortunately, they charge a lot of money to send their own judge. So they have approved a couple of judges that I submitted as impartial adjudicators. So they'll be doing the judging, but then we have to submit the whole package to Guinness. And later on in the summer, hopefully in August, they'll let us know and we'll have another party. As if all the collecting, curating, and record-breaking Nancy Hoffman does wasn't enough, she still finds time to play in two accordion bands and write her own book. July 20th, Nancy will appear at the Portland Public Library to speak about her book, Uncovered and Exposed, a guide to the world's only umbrella cover museum. You can visit her website, umbrellacovermuseum.org, for more information and to purchase a copy of her book. As we concluded our interview, I had asked Nancy one more question. Should we judge umbrellas by their covers? I would say no, because it's really the story behind the cover that makes it unique. More like people who don't want to judge them by their facade either. And that's part of our mission, which is appreciating the mundane. It's celebrating, enjoying the simple things in life, and knowing that there's always a story behind the cover. And that's the perfect sentiment for our New England Spotlight. If you'd like to hear the complete interview, including how Nancy got the middle name three, please visit RadioFreeNewEngland.com and click on the interviews link. You're listening. You're listening. You are listening to Radio Free. Radio Free. Radio Free. Radio Free New England. Welcome back to the Snail's Path, a commentary on conservation here on Radio Free New England. My name is Eric Messick. Thanks for listening. New England is known for its varying landscapes. Whether it be the lush forested areas, the rolling farmland, the unique old mill towns, or the varying coastline, each individual seems to hold their own view of which of these landscapes is quintessential New England. My personal favorite is the coastline. From the rocky shores of Maine to the sandy beaches of Cape Cod, down to the hustle and bustle of Newport, and around to the small villages that dot the Connecticut Sure, the coastline and everything that it brings along with it, to me, is quintessential New England. Throughout the world, 
country, and indeed New England these days, we hear about going local. This trend seems to include all facets of life, but most of the time we hear it relating to food. Whether it is a local farm that sells milk and eggs, meat, or vegetables, there is a big push for us to leave the grocery store and buy directly from the farmer. People are passing right by the grocery store and traveling longer distances to get to farmers markets and actual farms to purchase their food. Don't get me wrong, I support this effort and take part in it when possible, but as I hear about it more and more, I am always left thinking something's missing from the new trend. Remember now, coastal areas are my view of quintessential New England. In the Go Local movement, predominantly we hear about farms. My guess is that they are the focus because they have become more consumer friendly over the last few years, and when we as a public see something new, we focus on it. However, going local or buying local has been around in coastal towns for many years. Indeed, it has been around for so long now that it has become a bit passe. Thus, it hasn't been as big a highlight in the buy local movement as it should be. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the local fish markets that populate the coast of New England. They've been around and open for so long that sometimes we forget about them, but they are absolutely a great part of the buy local movement, and we should promote and include them as vigorously as we do land-based farms. As a youngster spending time in Maine, I remember my father hailing or rowing over to a lobster boat and procuring fresh lobsters for dinner. Yes, lobster is an incredible dinner, but the experience was much more than that. There was seeing the boats up close, all the equipment, the conversation with the folks bringing in the bounty. For a young kid, this was really an amazing experience. As an adult, I live in a coastal town of sorts. For many years, I've asked people, where can I find a local fish market with no success? Thus, I've resorted to buying my fish at the local supermarket, all the while not giving up on my quest to find a fish market. It took a conversation with a gentleman who has lived here his whole life to answer my question. Upon asking him, he said, Go to Captain Scott's. I was puzzled, you see. I knew of Captain Scott's. I have eaten there in the summers for many years. I said, no, no, no. I don't want prepared fish. I want fish that I can prepare myself. His response was, yeah, you have to go around the side of the restaurant and they have a fish market right there. I was still skeptical, but I was going to give it a shot. Upon walking in, it was great. The unique scent of a fish market, friendly people, and interesting selections. On the recommendation of the young lady behind the counter, I bought a piece of swordfish and was off to prepare it the way she had told me. The best part of this local purchase was the freshness. It smelled and tasted fresher than any fish I have had in years. A great buy local experience. So the next time you are in the market for some fish, remember you can buy local by going to the fish market. 
Not only will you have a great experience and procure a great product, but you will be supporting local folks who, at least up to this point, have been left out of the buy local movement. Well, that's it for this week's rendition of The Snail's Path. Thanks for coming along. I hope you come back next week to see where the path leads. Now for this week's commentary. When you're at a 21st century dinner party, it's polite to remember your parents' advice to avoid politics and religion. Even in today's post-partisan generation of 20-somethings, you have to be conscious of what you say in polite company. At a recent gathering, I took a chance and dipped my toe into what I believed to be a conversation ripe for Purple America, the rise of bath salts and the imminent zombie apocalypse. As it turns out, bringing up bath salts, zombies, or psychotic behavior is a guaranteed way to, well, get your head bitten off. Luckily for me, a friend soon rescued me by commenting on the bubbly consistency of his Trader Joe's seltzer. That conversational lifeline generated such animation and excitement within the group that my transgression was soon forgotten. Are you a three-pump or a five-pump person? That's a burning question when it comes to your home soda maker. If you're a three, you play it safe, opting for the rules set out in the machine's instruction manual. But if you're a five-pumper, watch out! You're living on the edge of carbonation, and you're probably the life of a party, too. Well, all that soda talk left me feeling pretty bloated and unsatisfied. What I yearned for was some stimulating conversation, the type I knew these very people had in college dorm rooms, arguing about presidential elections, the morality of imprisonment, and various other issues of the day. These are smart people, good people. It's just that now, in our late 20s, they've opted for polite conversation. Polite conversation may be in order when you're talking about national politicians, super PACs, or their mouthpieces, but this 4th of July, I decided our private conversations need more flair. How can we ever expect our leaders to take our concerns seriously if we opt for bubbly topics instead of the true issues that affect each and every one of us? We'll only be able to improve our national conversation when we choose to be brave in our private ones. Thank you for listening. This has been Radio Free New England with Chris Merritt. Want an easy way to listen? Subscribe to one of our podcast feeds, including iTunes, at RadioFreeNewEngland.com. Join us next Sunday when we feature the Eastern Connecticut Symphony Orchestra and our New England Spotlight. Thanks for listening.